0: I've been really enjoying starting these episodes off because, you know, we're enjoying each other so much. Um, I'm excited for you to answer this question. So, Jeannie, do you know what white people love to tell black people?
1: Oh, man. Uh, uh, let's see. I voted for Barack Obama twice. Yes. <laughs> I love Michelle Obama's book. Oh, I do. I miss the Obamas so much. I just I basically only have stuff about the Obamas. Yeah, it's like 90 percent Obama <laughs> talk. I mean, he is
0: mixed. He like <laughs> he brings us our worlds together. <laughs> <laughs> but but more likely it's like do you know Jeremy Smith or Tracy Johnson or like name any black person I can think of right now because you should meet and like talk to them and like you know be black oh. together.
1: Oh no! So I'm those ones were... because I know that's true.
0: It's crazy. And those ones for sure like are just the worst. But the other thing that white people love to tell black people is the idea that if you pick yourself up by your bootstraps um, or if you just create your own website or a YouTube channel or a podcast, you, you, just you alone, black person, you can create your own success. And all of the challenges, all of them will just go away.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, As though you're not being judged by your appearance or your voice or anything like that. No. So I think I know this theory, right? Like, if you work hard enough, you can achieve all your dreams. You can achieve the American dream. Sparkles everywhere. Yes. (laughs) It's a meritocracy. You can do this. It's a
0: meritocracy.
1: You just made a a (laughs) face that's like, this is not a meritocracy.
0: You can just lean in. (gasps) Mm -hmm.
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay. So... I have never thought about Lean In as like part of that whole bootstraps myth thing. Right. Wow. But now that I'm saying it, you
0: feel me. And when the book Lean In came out, I wanted no part of that.
1: Huh. I mean, it's Lean In is basically canceled now. People are saying a lot of the same stuff that you're saying. Yeah. Which means you basically predicted the future. Yeah. How did you do that? What kind of magic are you using? Mm, Black intuition. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay, this is fun, but, like, I'm going to say something that you are not going to like right now. Mm. I feel like there are some similarities, frankly, between Lean In Mm. and the stuff we talk about on the podcast. Seriously, specifically our tactics. Like, the word tactics is in our name. And if you think about it, Leaning In is itself... A tactic.
0: My eyes are gonna fall out. But I love tactics. I know. <laughs> like solution-based tactics, like helpful tactics for the disenfranchised. They're like my thing. Yeah, I know. But how helpful are like her tactics, like billionaire tactics to me as like an associate's degree having black freelancing mom with a background in
1: retail. Mm. I mean, that's a really fair point. And honestly, I am not the right person to ask because I basically did the Cliffs Notes version of Leaning In, however. We are going to talk to somebody who was a real, legitimate, lean-in evangelist for a while. Mm, yeah, Got the robe. So she actually read the book. Yes. Okay. Unlike us, she read the book.
0: <laughs> this is
1: BTSW. Battle tactics for your sexist workplace. Pew, pew, pew. I'm Eula Scott Bino. And I'm Jeannie Yandel.
0: Catherine Goldstein hosts the podcast, The Double Shift, about working moms.
1: And you probably know her because we shared an episode of hers a couple months back about a 24-hour daycare in Vegas. Right. But
0: also, before she started her podcast, Catherine leaned in really hard.
2: I think that I, I remember reading it and devouring it and reading it in like two days. I definitely saw myself not in that I was the next Cheryl Sandberg, but that Cheryl Sandberg definitely had something powerful to offer me. Catherine started a lean-in circle. She
1: used some of the salary negotiation strategies in the book and got a raise. And then when she was offered a bigger job at another company, she leaned in again and took it.
0: But reality check, it stopped working. Yeah. In fact, Catherine would never have made a podcast about working moms if lean-in hadn't failed her so thoroughly. But before it failed her, a lot of it worked.
2: After I read the book, I actually, a, me and a bunch of other women in our group, we all asked for raises. And I think like five out of the seven women in the group asked for raises and we all got them. So that was definitely wow. pretty cool. Um, yeah. the, idea, the idea of not just waiting around for someone to offer it to you. I think that was an important message. Probably one of the most important like lasting messages of Lean In was that men are out there asking for raises and negotiating starting salaries and, you know, job yeah promotions and stuff all the time. So if women aren't doing that, we really are at a disadvantage. I think Sheryl yeah. Sandberg wasn't the first person to think of that, but she certainly popularized that in the in the cultural understanding. And so then I think I really kind of took what Sheryl, you know, the message of Lean In. And so I was then offered a really big new job Um Maybe a year or two after I did lean in, that was gonna be mm. higher paying, higher profile, more responsibility. And I knew that I wanted to be a mom soon, but I felt like this was sort of my lean in moment. This was, you know, yeah. what Cheryl actually has an entire chapter in the book about this, which is just don't leave till you leave, like don't hold yourself yes. back if you think you want to have a kid because you could be making a lot of progress in that time and don't you know presume that you won't want to be having a hard charging job um, just because you also want to have a baby so i felt like this was Mm -hmm. like my true like lean in turning turning point moment test and so i took the much bigger job and i left behind a company that had a ton of parents was very flexible very family friendly to go work on a team where i was going to be Where I ultimately became the only working mother in this in this group in a much more traditional uh, office environment.
1: I just want to make a quick observation um, that a lot of what you've told us so far, Catherine, is like is pretty similar to stuff that we've covered on the podcast. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first episode we ever did in part talked about how to become a better negotiator for salary. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and those ideas of sort of downplaying your own achievements and making sure that you get credit for your ideas. Like I had not really, really considered this until, you know, we started talking with you, Catherine. But there is an argument to be made that like this book, even though the idea of leaning in is pretty frowned upon right now in a lot of ways, like this book laid groundwork for a lot of the conversations we're having right now.
2: Mm -hmm. I I agree. And I think that um, I'm not... I I now have some critiques of Sheryl Sandberg, but I don't hate her or think she had nothing to offer. I I think that they're actually, she had a very, very visible platform to raise some really important issues. And I think this idea of negotiation is super important. And I think she shined a light on that um, in an effective way. And so she definitely informs where we are today. I think there's just a question of where we're going from here rather than sort of just what what she said. I think that there's a lot more that can be built upon the things that she did in her book. Mm-hmm.
0: And and the thing is, you know, the one thing that she didn't she didn't she had one chapter where she, I feel like she didn't say a lot at all when it came to like the motherhood chapter. So right. after reading it, what did you think being a working mom would be like?
1: Yeah. Did you have like an idea in your head of yeah. what it would be like from reading the book? Because it I mean, sounded to me like you
0: could just get a babysitter and like right. and talk to your husband. I and mean.
2: I think Make it, right? I think there's so, um, I was so deeply, deeply, deeply unprepared for what it would mean yeah. to be a working mother. <laughs> um, like the levels like I've never been so unprepared for anything in my entire Girl. life because I'm sort of a preparer. Yes. And, you know, a lot of people uh, and of course, you know, it, it, we're all joking about this because truly there's nothing that can truly prepare you. I could have read like 10 really thoughtful books about becoming That's a working true. mother and I still wouldn't have been fully prepared. But mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, th- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that yeah. um, I think that my like what I um, what really didn't prepare me is because I was pretty bought into this lean in mindset, which was just like you know i've really thrived professionally things have really gone my way and i've had a and that of course was due to many other kinds of privileges i've had and i had in the workplace but my feeling was very much like you know Being a working mom is nothing that I can't handle. Like I've been able to handle everything so far and things have gone really well for me. And if I just keep working hard and I keep raising my hand and keep doing my best, like it's going to work out for me. And that is Mm. a very naive and privileged position that I was like very quickly disabused of.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) so then you become a mom. So were you right or I guess was like was a book right about anything as far as working moms?
2: Well, I think, you know, everyone has their own experience of what it means to be a working mom and how they integrate that into their identity. And for me, it was like a complete sort of shocking challenge to my identity. So like it started with my son was born with some pretty serious health problems um, and he's doing great now. But Mm -hmm. like basically my early stage of motherhood was like very much defined by like anxiety and trauma. And then Mm. I lost my job shortly after I came back from maternity leave. So Mm. that basically like completely unraveled my sense of identity. And so I felt I really felt like a failure because I had really bought into this idea that I was going to do everything right and I was everything was going to work out for me. And it felt like all all these other working moms had it all figured out and I was just a failure because the the sort of doctrine of personal responsibility of lean in is all about like don't hold yourself back. It's not really about things that can happen that really pushes you back on your heels. I did not
1: lose my job during my sort of during my period of time coming back to work after having my child. Um, But I did have an experience where less than a year after I had my daughter, I was offered this promotion and it was this kind of really big deal thing and high profile thing. And I specifically remember telling a coworker of mine who I really respected that one of the reasons I was going to take the promotion was because I wanted to be able to model for my daughter what it was like to become a leader who was a woman, right? Mm -hmm. Because there just weren't Mm -hmm. enough woman leaders, right? Mm -hmm. She was less than a year old. She (laughs) did not care. Like, (laughs) under no circumstances was she going to be like, was she, like, she did not care.
0: She's not like, my mom spends her time wisely. She's like,
1: yeah. And it was, but it was, you know, and I can't even say that I read the book Lean In. I just read all of the sort of analysis and coverage of it and felt like I had a handle on what I needed to do. And my responsibility was, it says this somewhere in the book, to not ask what the seat on the rocket looks like when I'm offered a seat on the rocket ship. I just get on the rocket ship, right? right? Yeah. And so that's what I did. And what if the seat looks like poop? this i mean the seat looked like me burning up any goodwill i had built up trying to make this project work that i was in charge of it looked like my health just tanking mm. um you know it looked like my relationship suffering and it looked like me feeling like i was terrible at everything i mean mm. you know my boss at the time basically told me i was failing it was it Whoa. was harder mm-hmm. by an order of magnitude than I ever imagined, and the only person I could think of to blame was myself because that was right. the only model I saw, right? Um, yeah, there was a ton, and there was just a metric ton of guilt. I mean, what were the consequences? You talked a little bit about sort of losing your identity and all of that, but for you,
2: what were what were your consequences?
1: I feel like I'm still, like, trying to undo some of the consequences, like, five years later,
2: yeah, totally. And I, you know, I've thought a lot about like, what if I had made different choices and what if I had stayed mm-hmm. at the family friendly job? Um, and you know, i I definitely had a lot of ups and downs over like the three years that followed. Um, but I think, um, I think like I found a lot of like personal grit and resilience, but and that I'm grateful for that, but not that like now that i i'm in and, and it this all sort of led me to begin studying and focus my journalism on working mothers so like my own tough personal experiences like led me to think like maybe there's something more here that can be looked at for journalists um because this is such a complex experience of being a working mother in america um but i think like you know from my research and reporting. Um, I think that, you know, I've even though I've had some very tough experiences, I've also had plenty of other things going for me. And a lot of women don't pick themselves back up. Like I know so many women who drop out of the workforce or never work full time again or, you know, feel so bad about themselves for the experience and really feel like it's their fault that I think that a lot of times uh, as mothers, especially, we internalize our difficult workplace experiences because, mm. as a society, we're so conflicted about working mothers. Even though you know over seventy percent of mothers work, mm-hmm. there's still this feeling like maybe it's better for kids if mothers don't work, or you know maybe I talk to working mothers all the time about the judgment they face for basically every life choice they possibly make. Like <laughs> there's so much judgment. So I think a lot of times those difficult experiences silence us. They make us feel really judged. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we don't necessarily, you know, maybe by the time, maybe five years later or 10 years later, we're ready to pick ourselves back up. But then our earning potential never recovers statistically. Um, we've lost many years in the workforce. And so it's not, I don't think that that's, I don't I don't feel like as a society, this is working out for working mothers. Yeah. No,
0: no, no, <laughs> no.
2: And it feel.
1: I mean- I also just it also occurs to me and we've heard other people say this on the show, too, that like, you know, we can just look at this as sort of a working mother problem. But the fact of the matter is anybody who needs to sort of do something besides be a traditional kind of achieving worker for whatever reason, like whether it's taking care of a baby or taking care of an ailing parent or taking care of yourself you know there because the stigma exists for working mothers there's not really a model or a template for like anybody who has to step away from the workforce or needs a different working arrangement outside of sort of traditional achievement career climbing kind of work life
2: T- mm-hmm. totally and i think that i think your assessment there is really accurate and I think we have to think about workplaces that support people at all stages of life and not just like working mothers get special treatment because I think that totally holds mothers back in the workplace and I think that also holds women back even who aren't mothers because there's assumption they could become a mother or not because most women do become mothers over eighty percent we don't see women in all kinds of jobs if so many mothers end up dropping out of the workforce or Taking steps back, so that really imp- impacts all women and all people with mm-hmm. caretaking responsibilities, or even lives who want to have uh, flexible workplaces that support them and whatever their, you know, needs or interests are.
1: With that feeling bad about ourselves piece of it though whether it's feeling bad for not getting work-life balance perfect that ridiculous construct or whatever it is that idea of guilt like is there anything helpful about feeling guilt i'm asking you in part as somebody who was raised catholic and i'm always guilty about something so help me feel good about my guilt katherine goldstein
2: um i was raised jewish so i understand guilt too
1: okay
2: what's good about our guilt anything <laughs> um, and i'm here to tell you there's nothing good about your guilt so <laughs> so let me tell you All a right. little bit i've actually really interested in guilt and mom guilt in spe- specifically and i've actually researched this so interestingly there are no large-scale studies on moms and guilt which is really interesting because it's like such a pervasive mm. phenomenon but Yeah. You'd think, like, get some academic research going on that, people. Yes. (laughs) So, uh, but what I have found in my research is that guilt and anger operate in two different parts of the brain. So guilt is Mm -hmm. actually a withdrawal motivation, which makes people feel quiet, embarrassed. They don't want to speak out and they want to sort of just, you know, stay out of the line of fire and keep things to themselves. And then, so I
1: just want to clarify, withdrawal motivation means, like, it it motivates you to essentially, like, try and disappear? Yes. Like, it, to step yes. back and make yourself less visible? Okay, yes. thank you. And
2: that operates um, in part uh, one part of the frontal cortex. And then anger, which is sort of a different response to difficult situations. Um, It operates in this different part of the brain that's an approach motivation that actually makes you want to go towards challenges and speak Mm. up, stand up for yourself and actually fix things. So, um, So I've found in my research, like I hear a lot about mom guilt. And so I'm much more interested in can we sort of transfer this idea of mom guilt into a motivating anger? And not necessarily an anger that's, you know, about yelling at people on Facebook and just sort of burning you up, but... How could we translate these feelings of guilt that we are things are tough at our jobs or that we don't have work-life balance and like identify what it is underneath that guilt that's actually making us angry because angry Mm. people um, speak up for themselves at work. They sue their employers. They go to protests. They try to get new policies put in place in their workplaces or in the government. And so I think productive anger is actually like basically the only thing that's going to make things better for mothers. Because, like, I have found in my reporting, like, nobody's coming to stand up for, um, for mothers if we don't get angry and stand up for ourselves. Mm. Facts.
0: All facts.
1: I'm imagining my mind lighting up in different places. Yeah. Right? yeah and yeah, how I yeah. can harness. Mm-hmm. Right. That's but, amazing.
0: And I, I thought about how, like, in personal relationships, I totally work on guilt. I, like, do things out of guilt. But then in, when it comes to, like, what I feel like my, I do for a living, I feel like I do it off out of anger in terms of, like, the way you lit it up. I was like, yeah, I'm frustrated with, like, oppression. And so, like, I get up every day and I, like, work towards ending it. Right. Totally. Uh, Cause I'm I mean, angry. Yeah. It,
2: anger is like the primary motivator in the work of what I do as well. So like I am mm-hmm. enraged about the way mothers in America are treated. And every single day I get up to make this independent podcast that like a lot of people told me wasn't worth making. And I just keep doing it.
0: <laughs> so what if you're trying all this? I think about I'm thinking about the anger I, I had after reading the chapter all over again. But so, um, <laughs> but what if you try all this advice, right? Like you try all this advice and you're still being met with like systemic barriers, right? Like you're, you're leaning in as far as you can and the systemic barriers that you and I and Jeannie, like we know exists and hopefully more people are coming to the understanding exists, right? Like there are things, there are these huge Mario castle size monsters that um, we are like little Mario. We don't even have like one star. Is this not a star? One mushroom to like make it to where we're trying to get to.
1: I want to extend the analogy and just say if Mario tried to <laughs> lean in to knock over that castle, probably Mario would waste a life.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. We would waste a life. Oh, yeah. that's so sad. So I'm feeling like I feel like the next logical step here is that women would end up blaming themselves. Right. Like I couldn't get right. up this mountain because I just I just couldn't figure it out on my own.
2: I mean, I really feel like starting to speak up about these difficult and honestly traumatic experiences that people have in the workplace instead of staying quiet about them helps us come together in community about how these things are not acceptable and need to change. So if something if you're dealing with something really terrible in the workplace and you never tell anyone about it, you know, that is the burden you're always going to bear alone. And so I've really found in my reporting, like some workplaces are awful and toxic and you can't change them. And the sooner you realize that, like the better off you're going to be. And that's not a failure on you. There are other workplaces and probably most workplaces that are more in a gray area and that there are things that are could be good about them. There are things that are bad about them. There's some great policies in place, but there's like one really toxic HR person or something. Like It's usually like a, a spectrum and a scale of a, of what a workplace is. So yeah. I've really found in my reporting that the most effective way to change workplaces is to find allies within your workplace and get a bunch of women together to make Real concrete proposals and policy solutions, and and sort of try to push your workplace forward, and and that's very hard to do on your own. I've only really seen it in my reporting with women coming together in community to do it together, like a strength in numbers thing. Right. I mean,
1: I have to say, I you know when I first started thinking about Lean In and you know reading all of the coverage of Lean In and kind of deciding to embrace that as a thing that I wanted to do. Um, it didn't occur to me that I am not the same as Cheryl Sandberg. Like, I don't have the resources Cheryl Sandberg has. Right. I don't even really define success the same way Cheryl S- Sandberg does. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so, you know, I wonder, and I'm not trying to, I'm not again trying to make this about like, oh, I just misunderstood here. Like, it's really my problem. But this book, it's obvious that this book is not for everyone, even though it was marketed to Like, all women with jobs? I mean, you read the book. You knew what was happening. I'm assuming you don't have kind of Sheryl Sandberg-level resources either. Why do you think so many of us assumed this book was written for us? Even though, like, there's no way it was written for us. We can't say that, like, Larry Summers was our mentor, right? We can't say that we just, like, have conversations with Mark Zuckerberg on the regular and he advises us on, like, how to be better at work or whatever.
2: But that's what aspiration is all about, right? It's like, you know, she has achieved so many things and she is doing such amazing things. And she's a mom, you know, she's a mom, too. And she's, a, you know, has worked her way up through various companies and blah, blah, blah. Like, that's the whole idea of aspiration. And I think that that's also what's so potentially damaging about some of this sort of like celebrity advice complex that we're that we live under, which mm. is just that... A lot of that advice and those sort of lessons come from people who just kind of won the lottery in some way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I feel like we're brushing awfully close up to the mythology of the American dream. In a little, you know, in a way, like, you know, she never literally says, I came from nothing and look what I achieved, but that narrative, that arc that is in the book is like, this is how I climbed. This is how I climbed this mountain. And if I can do it, you can do it. Too.
2: Totally. And I think that we were mm-hmm. all primed mm-hmm. to hear that message. And maybe we realized our lives weren't, you know, Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook level, but maybe we could identify with being that, you know, straight A student in high school. And that, like, she was that straight A student yeah. in high school and she went to a great college and, like, look what happened for her. So, I think that there are, you know, elements of her story that resonated with people and tap into, as you say, this very powerful idea as Americans that we so believe that the individual can conquer anything. And I think that that is like extremely damaging to how women are dealing with their situations at work and also sort of like where we find ourselves with like public policy, with like family leave and child care, because it's all just like left up to the individual still.
1: Yeah. Mm hmm. Do you think then that we're, I don't know, maybe being a little too hard on Sheryl Sandberg?
2: Well, you know, (laughs) she can only write from her experience. Well, one of the initial criticisms, I think, of the book was that like, oh, this doesn't speak to every woman's circumstance. I do think that was an initial critique, like blue collar workers or people who were single mothers or didn't have the kind of education, you know, didn't have college degrees and stuff. And, you know, it is interesting because like no one says that about men who write business books about success. No one's like, well, you're not talking about, you know, janitors. They're like, yeah, great. You have you're so successful you're sharing your advice like I felt like that was an unfair criticism yeah. of her that she was supposed to speak really for every woman and you know I, I do think that part of the problem is that we we don't have enough really diverse models for a lot of different kinds of success in female leadership we still really prize this idea of like the female CEO is like the pinnacle of like who to learn from as female leaders and I think that's why we put too much hope and too much criticism on p- people like Sheryl Sandberg
0: so the overall intent of lean in, whether you know it works or not, is to help women in the workplace. And Sheryl Sandberg's advice on how to be different as an individual didn't work for you all like a hundred percent of the way, right? It got you to that first like really beautiful plateau of that new job, but then you know didn't hold weight water for long. So what what approach do you think is better or more realistic?
2: You know. What I think resonated with me about Sheryl Sandberg's message, um, and that I've had to really reevaluate in my life in the last four years, is that you know the pinnacle of success is about status and money. So it's about how much money you make and like what your job title is, and you know that's a very classically New York (laughs) status, you know, kind of status success. And I was very much in that world, and so I think that. Introspection on what really matters to people in their professional life, rather than those sort of outward trappings that are very male-dominated in terms of what is success. I think it's really important, Mm -hmm. and like, and I think as women, because our workplaces are so inflexible, we have to define our own work lives and our own measures of success outside of these very traditional trappings because we're not going to fit into them.
1: Catherine, you've listened to the show. You know that we always ask. The folks that we talk to to give us tactics, right? Like, what tactics can we use to try and counter what's happening in our workplaces, right? To try and reframe it, fight against it. Our show title is literally Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. But, I mean, I don't know. Eula and I and Caroline, our senior producers, like, we struggle with that idea because we don't think that, like, the people who are being marginalized... <laughs> by problematic or biased systems should be the ones to like fix up, yeah. right? Like it's not on people to like manage up and magically fix all these big systems, you know. Yeah. So, from what you've seen, do you think individual tactics or solutions can can really help women at work? I mean, I feel like I'm kind of asking, like, are we off base at this with this idea of? proposing that tactics can make big
2: differences individual tactics i love that like i'm getting this huge existential question about the entire focus of your show this is like a I big <laughs> question oh my gosh for real <sighs> for real i'm gonna take a deep breath you're welcome i love the you can show handle it. i that's love the show you're doing them. great work mm-hmm. you're doing great you're doing great okay so mm. here's what i would say <laughs> so um because i have a podcast that's about working mothers Um, I get asked what my advice for working mothers is a lot. And Mm -hmm. because everyone, you know, I talk a lot about big picture stuff and, you know, systemic anti-mom bias and huge obstacles we face in the workplace. And people are like, so what are your tips? And I've come to see it as sort of a radical proposition to refuse to offer a lot of advice, because I feel like there's so much advice offered, especially to mothers, but women in general, that all sort of like assumes that there's something wrong with us and that we need to be Mm. fixed in some way. And that advice, even when it's really well-intentioned or maybe even helpful, like plays into that idea. And I've come to see in my own work that like telling mothers to get up at 5 a.m. or like giving great lunch packing strategies, like ain't gonna fix it because we <laughs> oh god no <laughs> because we face no. such huge things and that's the sort of like cool you know that's the sort of like you know candy that people always want at the end and I, so i've like come to see it as sort of like is there a way for me to radically challenge this idea by not like wanting to give super concrete tactics but with that yeah. said <laughs> i do think like this idea that i touched on earlier of coming together in community and not sort of the idea of coming together powerfully with other women to change systems and governments and policies and the way we think about people, that is powerful to me more than like, here's one thing you can do. Like my, my only tip is to come together in community to change these systems. And so trying not to make it so individual and more collective, I think, has the most potential power. Hmm.
1: Hey, Catherine, I have to say you kind of laid out a little stealth tactic earlier on that I just want to repeat because I, I loved it so much, sure. which is if you are feeling guilt about something, examine that and see if you can find the anger that is lying underneath that. Yes, I'm all that about was that. a good one. I'm all about that. I mean, I feel like that's really, really powerful. And I don't want I don't want to sleep on that one.
2: I think that mothers especially, are very ready to have a format to express their anger. And I think that I if I can do anything in this world, I would love to give mothers permission to be angry. <laughs> There's a lot of ways that you can channel that anger at the system into doing good, whether it's volunteering or becoming a foster parent or going to marches mm-hmm. or you know, getting to know your neighbors and looking out for them like that, Is Those are all powerful, powerful things that people can do to channel their anger productively that isn't just about, you know, changing your whole career and starting a podcast. Catherine Goldstein, creator and host of the podcast, The Double Shift, thank
1: you so much for talking with us. This was great. Thanks so much for having me. So... What do you think about what we just heard? Mm,
0: I'm having a lot of thoughts. I'm really thinking about how I define success, and. Yeah you know because it's a hard thing to gauge and the first thing that came to mind was the idea of beyonce's career versus cardi b's
1: oh yeah (laughs) plain so well beyonce
0: has like this very traditional like role of pop star in that she travels the world and has done this both before and after becoming a parent yeah you know touring and giving us what we want Mm -hmm. where cardi b has managed to have like the same kind of trajectory and career as pop star but she's doing a las vegas residency right now have you heard of this
1: Oh, where she's just like doing a bunch of shows in Las Vegas, right? Yeah. And she's like living there for a while. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. For
0: me as a mom, I really love the idea of being able to think through what I would do if I could control my own schedule because oh. that's what Cardi B has done for herself here. She's still saying, I want success. I mm-hmm. want to have a career, even though I have a young child. I'm just making it work for me. Hmm.
1: Oh, it's genius. That's a really interesting comparison. Mm-hmm. I have been thinking about success as well. Yeah. Like, how to define that. I've also been thinking a lot about that idea that like guilt is not an emotion that spurs you to action, Mm -hmm. but anger is an emotion that spurs you to action, right? Yeah. We also got to talk to our HR whisperer, for this show right Michaela Michaela Kiner Kiner. yeah Mm -hmm. she talked about anger too and she said that she's had her own I love how she put this she's had her own journey with anger Mm -hmm. we've all had a journey with anger I think it started with sanity yeah and it ended with sanity but in the in between there was a fool right in front of you (laughs) there's a lot yeah (laughs) but she also um really agreed with you and Catherine on another point which is that it doesn't actually matter whether the book lean in and the tactics in that book were successful for individual women or not, like whether circumstantially it worked sometimes the systems are still biased no matter what. And that's the problem to work on. Like, that's the thing we have to focus on. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah.
0: So another really great point that Michaela talked to us about was the idea of individual action. You know, being aware and knowing that you can't on your own fight this entire, you know, biased system. Yeah, yeah. But at the exact same time, you do have to show up for yourself sometimes, especially if you have a bad boss oh, and yeah. you're going to have to do a lot of individual action to work around that person yeah. and to you know further your career even though it's very different from just leaning in with yes. the hopes that you're going to do it all on your own. Yes. It's, it's a tactic to go around them.
1: Yes. This is like a limited amount of time where you're choosing to manage around somebody. Right. Knowing that, you know, the system's set up against you. Because you
0: can't do it forever. Right. Oh, <laughs> man. So this feels like it's kind of going downhill. Yeah. But I, but I wanted to ask you that, you know, in this uphill battle fighting sexism, if I continue to pull my load, will you pull yours?
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Hell Yeah.
0: BTSW is a production of KUOW in Seattle. Our senior producer is Caroline Chamberlain Gomez. She's got all the names. Special thanks to Juan Chiquiza, our social media strategist.
1: Our managing producer is Brendan Sweeney. Special thanks to Michaela Kiner and Ruchika Tulshian who have been advising us this season.
0: This podcast was inspired by the book, Feminist Fight Club, written by Jessica Bennett.
1: Our theme music was composed by Kesia Gordon. Our graphics designer is Tio Popescu. I'm Jeannie Yandel.
0: I'm Eula Scott Bino. Keep up the good fight.
1: See you soon.